Welcome back to another Quick Bit episode. If this is your first time listening to us and our podcast, we post two episodes every single week, Friday and Sunday. We are the podcast that ultimately puts out stories and talks about crimes and killings and disappearances that aren't really talked about in the news or other podcasts or even in books. If you want to hear more series, we got a few series coming up this year. Hit follow on Spotify, Apple, Google, Anchor, or wherever you listen to your podcast. If you want to find out about the series that we are working on, that are coming up with the first one coming in May. Follow us and like our page on Facebook. After Dark Coast to Coast Killers. Once again, you can follow us anywhere. After Dark Coast to Coast Killers. Today's quick bit episode, we are going to be talking about the seven most intelligent criminals who have ever lived. When we talk about people that commit crime, whether it's killing people, raping people, robbing a bank, our most common reaction is they don't have the intelligence to stop committing a crime. Not all criminals aren't intelligent, but a lot of them actually are. Criminals typically have to have a structured plan. They have to predict how not to get caught. They have to think which way is better, smarter, clever, so they don't get caught with a crime. The first criminal we are going to talk about is a guy named Frank William Abagnell Jr. He is currently an American security consultant but he is well known for his career as a conman, check forger, and imposter when he was 15 to 21 years old. Before he turned 21, he became one of the most famous frosters who had ever lived. He impersonated an airplane pilot, a physician, a U.S. Bureau prison agent, a lawyer, a teaching assistant, and a Louisiana Parish prosecutor. In 1969, he was a Czech fraudster when he was finally arrested by the French police. When he was arrested, police from 12 countries sought his extradition because of fraud he committed in all those countries. He was actually tried twice, tried in France, Sweden, and the United States. The Italian almost got their hands on him, but his passport was canceled, so he had to be deported back to the U.S. While in prison, he successfully escaped twice. Once from a plane on an active taxiway while they were trying to deport him from the New York City JFK Airport. And another time that he did escape prison was by impersonating 
an undercover federal agent in the prison. He spent his post-prison adult life advising the FBI and teaching at the FBI Academy. There is actually even a movie starring Leonardo DiCaprio that's based on his life called Catch Me If You Can. The second person is Gregor McGregor. He's a legendary con artist. He's the con man who pulled off history's most audacious scam. In the winter of 1822, Gregor McGregor, a native of Glengill, Scotland, made a striking announcement. He was, he said, not only a local baker's son, but the catechist of Prince of the Land of Poyes along Honduras' Black River. He said the country was a little larger than Wales. The country was so fertile it could yield three maize harvests a year. The water is so pure and refreshing it could quench any thirst. And if that weren't enough, chunks of gold lined the riverbeds, the trees overflowed with fruit and the forest teemed whiskey. Quote unquote. People were fooled into McGregor's vision of a new life abroad. His proposal offered quite the gleeful sunshine and plain fertile land in contrast to the rainy darkness and rocky soils of Scotland. He pretty much doing a lot of vestors by his vision. And I guess when you have that perfect vision that all these people want, you have the vision to ultimately do whatever you can, say whatever you can. You can tell these people anything about your vision and they'll believe it, they'll buy into it, they'll invest in it. And this is what he did, but what he lacked, he said, were willing investors and settlers to develop and leverage its resources to the fullest. As the time of McGregor's vision, Central and South America were popular destinations for investors, and Poyasus appeared to be a particularly appealing proposition. The next one of this section is the big uprising in this is just not the vesting, but Scotland didn't actually have any colonies of their own. He even published interviews and ads in newspapers touting the perks that would come from investing or settling in Poyas. He even highlighted the bravery and fortitude that such a gesture would demonstrate. In his words, quote-unquote, you wouldn't just be smart, you would be a real man. He seems like a pretty good, smart, intelligent, clever, stunning, brilliant man and when he he could have a vision even if that vision was completely made up he had people captivated already
when his tactics didn't just work, he would go other routes. And when they were working, which over half the time they were, they were so successful that he even printed his own money. Not only did McGregor raise 200,000 pounds directly to the bond market value over his life ran to 1.3 million pounds or in pounds 3.6 billion today. Next criminal we are going to talk about is Mark DeFrest. In the most heavenly guarded Florida prison in the United States there was a custom cell. There was a prisoner who was alone in captivity for decades. He never saw the sun, but even then, he continued to escape. In 1980, the first retrieved work tools that recently deceased father had willed him before the will officially went through probate. This act was considered theft and his stepmother called the police and he was arrested. DeFrest was sentenced to four years in prison because he was in possession of firearms which violated his probation. The most unimaginable thing is that his initial sentence was only four years. But because he always escaped from the jail, the final sentence was increased to 105 years. At 35 years of prison life, he was tortured by prison guards and bullied by prisoners. He escaped 13 times and succeeded seven. When people described Mark, he was described as a genie child from early age. He had a superior IQ and he was free to dis- disassemble things with there was a watch or an engine. He also had a good father. Mark's father worked at the Strategic Intelligence Agency during World War II and he was deeply convinced that the Soviets would kill and destroy their lives. Therefore, he gave his life survival skills to his only son, including various tactics, gun use, machine building, and all the escape skills he wanted. The toys that Mark played with were all kinds of guns, from small to large, and the stories before bedtime were all about kinds of guerrilla warfare. Mark's genius also caused his own distress. Mark seems to present a certain degree of mental abnormality. This condition has not been diagnosed yet, or so far at least, but the basic consensus of it now is that he suffers from autism and that affects his social skills. He will never hurt others, but he is deeply immersed in his own world. Now let's talk about his imprisonment for a little bit. Two years after his first time being in prison, 
Mark began to plan jailbreak. His various abetterness and singularity and incredible jailbreak ideas fully demonstrate his extraordinary brain and the creativity of his geniusness. 1981, he made his first jailbreak. The plan was to make everyone quote-unquote quiet. He sneaked into the prison pharmacy to get 100 powerful anesthetic pills mixed into the guard of coffee. When everyone enters the state, I can go, quote-unquote. The drug did work, but someone did call the police. On another time, he designed a device to bounce himself out of the grid and high walls. This time, he successfully reached the marsh outside the prison. The most amazing one, though, he just glanced at the key hanging on the guard's belt and copied the same key with his memory and the effortlessly went out of the prison gate. He will not be released though until 2085 if he is still alive by then. There's a documentary made by him if you want to go check him out, check out other stuff. About him is called The Life and Mind of Mark DeFrest. Next criminal is called Mamoru Samaru Agachi. He isn't just a serial murderer or a rapist or a cartel leader. He actually committed one of the most fraudulent practices in music. He's born in Japan and a Japanese composer for Hiroshima Prefecture and gave even a worldwide announcement that he was deaf. He was so manipulative that everyone believed that he had a hearing disability before producing large volumes of musical masterpieces including premier symphonies, even the theme song for Resident Evil and widely acclaimed Animusha Warlords. However, the catch was that he wasn't actually deaf. Well, obviously, you know, when you're committing fraud and you're so convincing nobody's even gonna dare question you. He was even dubbed as the digital agent of Beethoven but he even didn't write his own pieces. He actually had another person called Takashi Nagaki and composed everything and let him soak up all the undeserving credit. Even though you may say that how he convinced people or his IQ or his intelligence wasn't there, it was. He was highly eccentric and inverted and he could even avoid being interviewed and that lowered it's risk of actually being exposed as a fraud. 
a lot of money that he gave Nikaki didn't exactly work out. For Nagaki, he was getting agitated and he wasn't getting due recognition for pieces which he composed all by himself. Samagachi's career did though survive for 18 full years and then he was exposed. He was forced to get to person or to person tip participate, sorry about that, in an interview on when Samagachi slipped up and did things he that hinted that he wasn't completely deaf. He answered before an interpreter was done gesturing, stood up to answer the doorbell, and showed poor understanding of the theory behind his composed pieces. Nagaki wrote his skepticism to his advantage and then exposed his complaints as a true musical fault. Moving on to Theodore John Kaczynski, or aka the Unabomber. But before we continue, once again, if you like these quick bit episodes, follow on anywhere that you can listen to a podcast. And on top of that, follow us on Facebook. We got a few new series coming up. The first one is called The Post Boredom Files, coming out May 18th. And if you want any updates on what we do with this series, what they're about, when they're coming out, Facebook is the place to follow us for those updates. And moving on. Theodore was really great in math. He was a prodigy in how he did math and how his brain worked with math. He dropped out of society and began his bombing campaign. He avoided capture because it was when it came to mail bombing he was good at. And I, I guess I'm not going to be acting like a genius in this or intelligent in this part, but mail, mail bombing, I guess back then was a lot easier. You can probably send anthrax through envelopes a lot easier. And that was probably really, really up to his standards because it worked really well for him. He probably knew inside and out that these are the things that they don't really check for. He's actually the best male bomber that ever was. With care, he first found out how law enforcement solved this sort of crime. Then he studied how the FBI did it. The investigation of him was the longest ever in their history. And prior to his publishing his manifesto, they had made absolutely zero progress. He actually never even appeared on any suspect list or any working suspect list, any suspect list of sort he has never appeared on. The FBI didn't even make it 
good guess as to where he was, how many people he could have been. They they had zero things, despite him actually being out there, is these mill bombs. His bombs were made from ordinary household objects, obtained from scrap heaps and junk cards. Anything that required any sort of manufacturing process like his witch, he fashioned himself if at all possible. Batteries were stripped of their covers, their caps filed down to remove any numbers, markings, or other identifying characteristics. Somehow, he never even got a single fingerprint on anything that he built. Not a strand of hair, not a dead skin cell, not even any saliva from a sneeze or mouth. There was no DNA. He even added false evidence, including hair clippings from I, I, I really don't know. I don't think anybody really knows. Metal parts with marking intact from an antique shop in Texas. Cotton fibers from the lint trap of a New York laundromat. So what I'm saying is he knew that if he got all these different things from not just one state, but another and another and another, it would be so difficult to track where he's actually at. He could be hiding California, but he doesn't get anything from California. He gets it from everywhere else. And you're like, well, maybe that would catch him. Maybe not. All of this, though, like I said, this and the investigators chasing a thousand false leads. They even sifted through the microscopic debris without much of anything in return from it. Like I said, he got all these things from different places. So I threw them off 100%. And anything that came back threw them off even more. He even sent private letters to the FBI and he taunted them. He carefully phrased to conceal his education and intelligence. The feds profiled him as having at best a high school education, but he actually was a Harvard educated PhD. While he was against modern technology, he targeted airlines in particular to sense false singles regarding his motives. One time he took a 24 hours bus ride to drop a package into a distant mailbox causing the FBI to think he was in California, not Montana. He stopped mailing bombs for six months and that did also throw the feds and everyone else in a loophole because for Actually, it wasn't six months. It was six years. My bad. And it sent everybody questioning, did he kill himself? I... You know, I'm not going to say that I've thought about disappearing for six years or so. Because I have. You know, if, if I had to fake my own death for very, very right circumstances... 
I would make everybody think that I was actually dead. And that's what he did. He's just stopped for a very long period of time. And everybody was wondering if he killed himself. Investigators experience with this case got assigned to more urgent matters. Then he started again. He was playing several chess moves ahead of everyone else. He managed to arrange things such that the more you investigated the crime, the less you knew about him. He was brilliant. He was betrayed by his brother, David Kosicki, and that led to his capture. He is currently serving eight life sentences without the possibility of parole at ATX Florence, which is a supermax prison in Colorado. Let's talk about the smiling hacker from Algeria. This man, Hamza Benilaji, I know that I did, did really bad on that. So let's just call him Hamza. He hacked 217 banks and collected around $400 million. He did this all by himself. He is a polyglot speaking five languages, often using profit in view of his linguistic knowledge in order to extract money anywhere in the world. He was even on the top 10 list of the most wanted hackers by Interpol and the FBI. He is said to have embezzled more than $280 million, redistributing it to various African and Palestinian NGOs. He also hacked the official website of the Israel government, after which he was offered a deal by the government to work for them in exchange for intervention with the U.S. that will not would allow for a lighter sentence or even drop charges. And at some point in 2016, he was arrested in Bangkok and extradited in the, to the U.S. They sentenced him on April 20th, 2016 to 15 years in prison and three years of probation. The last one, his name is Count Victor Lustig. Victor was a highly skilled con artist from Austria-Hungary who undertook a criminal career that involved conducting scams across Europe and the U.S. during the early 20th century. He was exceptionally gifted at learning throughout his youth, but also proved himself to be a source of trouble. He perpetrated an impressive number of genius scams throughout his life, but the main one which gave him eternal fame was the seller of the Eiffel, Twi- uh, the Eiffel Tower. Sorry about that. In 1925, the city of Paris was having issues with maintaining the Eiffel Tower due to shortage of funds. Lustig capitalized on that to the market, the tower of a, to a group of wealthy businessmen, while claiming to be a government agent. In a meeting, he convinced the men 
that the upkeep of the Eiffel Tower was becoming too much for Paris and that the French government wished to sell it for scrap. But that's because such a deal would be controversial and likely spark public outcry. However, nothing could be disclosed until all the details were thought out. Only one man of the whole entire group fell for it, and his name is Andre Poisson. Arranging a private meeting with Poisson, Lustin convinced them that he was a corrupt official, claiming that his government position did not give him a generous salary for the lifestyle he wished to enjoy. He believed that the sale of the Eiffel Tower would secure him a place amongst the top businessmen. Poisson agreed to pay a large bribe to secure ownership of it. However, once Lusting received the, his bribe and the funds of the sale around 70,000 francs, he soon fled to Austria. When the matter died down, he once again did return to Paris and try to sell it again. But then he was alerted to, to the police and he fled the U.S. Or he fled to the U.S. He actually, when he arrived in the U.S., he scammed Al Capone of $5,000. He was arrested in 1935 in New York and later died in 1947 in prison. Before he died, he created a template for conning people, which he called the Ten Commandments for conning. If you want to hear more about these quick bits, or even our Friday episodes where we talk in length about one serial killing or serial killer crime, go follow us everywhere that. You can listen to podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, Overcast, Google, wherever you listen to podcasts and you can find us, do it. If, once again, you want to find out about our upcoming series, for example, our next one that's coming out is Postmortem Files and our Coast to Coast Long Haul Killers. The first one is going to be about where we look at the history of criminals and we look at their autopsy reports. The coast to coast long haul killers is about truck drivers that are serial killers, just killers in general. And those two will be coming out in May. The first episode of the Postmortem Files will be about Bonnie and Clyde dropping May 19th of this year and the first episode of Long Haul Killers will be about Edwards Rot and that will be dropping the 28th of May. And then we will have another series that comes out, kind of be our summer series, it's called Without a Trace, we talk about typically unsolved um, disappearances. Our first episode of that will be coming out in September. So I guess it's not really a summer, it's our fall. Um, And it will be talking about Brandon Swanson 
And we also have another series, which is called It Came From The Forest. It's our mini-series. And the first episode will be October 5th. And we are going to be talking about Hummel Park Cannibals from Omaha, Nebraska. And our last series to finish up the year will be Coast to Coast Cults. We will be releasing our first episode in November. And we will be talking about the Texas Hypno Cult. And from there we will branch out the long haul killers to long haul traffickers where we talk about truck drivers trafficking or sex trafficking whatever what every type of traffic okay we'll talk about that in the coming months and then that's pretty much it for right now and then we will be renewing several seasons the only two seasons right now we aren't going to be renewing is without it no we're going to renew that one the the first one is actually postmortem files we want to renew that one and then it came from the woods we want to renew that one we will only renew that one it came from the woods if you guys liked it and we'll just bring it back probably for a while but you guys gotta like it Without further ado, without me rambling on. Forgot what I was going to say. Anyhow, see you next time and stay tuned for Friday's episode, which is going to be about Bible John. Okay, see you next time.